Welcome uh, to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast. If Dan was host co- was hosting as he normally does, he'd say, "What is it again? About again, uh, decarbonization of of the built environment and uh, and uh, and sustainability." Uh, that's probably a botched job, but anyway, uh, this week uh, we have been graced with the presence of uh, a kind of. Um, a godhead figure, a godhead figure in in uh, in terms of um, public sustainable kind of design, I suppose, or public facing. Uh, Charlie Luxton, and um, thank you so much for joining us, Charlie. It's a real privilege to have you on. Well, I've never been described as a godhead figure in whatever capacity. I'm an atheist. So I'm, it's already going really well for me. I mean, and this is great. Let's. <laughs> and by the way, your sales pitch is is off the charts. You know. All right. in sort of sustainability, sort of chatting. Well, it's all pointless anyway, isn't it? Right? <laughs> we're 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 going we're going to die in a, a fiery death. We're going to be kind of scuttling around in the in the uh, um, in the filth of the um, apocalypse, um, fighting over rat meat. That's one of my favorite kind of tropes that I refer. To. <laughs> but we still have to, you know. But but I have a business to run, so and it's, it happens to be in this space, so I have to pretend that we still have hope, right? No, I, I do actually know we we have to have some hope. I know we've had horrible news this week. Um, with the uh, it was just yesterday uh, we had this uh, this uh, prediction about what was it uh, reaching one point five degrees by uh, by twenty twenty seven. Um, yeah, sixty percent chance of exceeding it by twenty twenty seven. Yeah, which is uh, shocking and sooner than anyone had hoped. And and the idea that I mean, it's it sort of it's kind of. A salutary lesson that you know they're still fighting on one level to to, to halt at one point five, and we're going to pass it in four years, likely to, likely to. And I, I think so that's you know how we can get it right. That's well, just... the problem is it just seems to be this disconnect between what the science and the observations on the ground are saying and what the politicians are still arguing about, and 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 that that's the slightly scary thing. But I'm with you. I think there's still hope that we'll have some semblance of a similar planet. And, and one that's comfortable to be on. Uh, but I think it's, yeah, it's going to be quite different is my sort of gut feeling. You, you know, do you know, uh, uh, without wanting to go on straight into this, but what, what the hell, um, uh, I kind of am of the view, because um, when you look at the kind of the, the playbook that's come from some of the, the corporate chills uh, on the fossil fuel industry side of things, um, about, you know, over the last few decades, uh, the, the, the way it's moved from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very badly characterizing this, but but uh, denying that it was a problem uh, to climate change, denying that uh, humanity was having any impact on it, uh, arguing that it was going to be too expensive to do anything about it, and so on, um, and um, uh, and then arguing that there'd be benefits to it, and and and, and all this kind of stuff, um, and then arguing that the, that the the best thing to do instead is to adapt. So, I mean, obviously, I, I don't have any trouble with that, but. I, it's been in my mind for a long time that because of the kind of the feedback kind of delays that we have here and the, and the amount of, of warming and chaos that's kind of already baked into the system, that we can't just be thinking about mitigation. We have to be kind of at the same time thinking about adaptation too. Um, it's kind of a, it seems like trying to, you know, uh, play a kind of a, a I don't know Beethoven kind of uh, symphony or whatever with your with both your hands tied behind your back, or whatever I know. But um, you know, uh, what's your view on that? Are you still just you know? Are you trying to think about um, 
robustness about adaptation, about future climate scenarios as well, or, or just about uh, mitigation. Sorry for launching straight into this, by the way. No, no, it's fine. No, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's a pressing issue. I don't think we've got time to sit around and shoot the breeze. We need to get, get into it. Um, no, I think we have to be designing our buildings to to operate well, comfortably within the new, uh, the reality of what the new climate's going to look like. And I think I think that's uh, that's definitely a challenge. And, you know, when we started running PHPP models uh, to look at the overheating characteristics, uh, you know, we are trying to scenario what 2050 looks like and, and, and what this part of the world I live in, in sort of the middle of England, in, in sort of the Cotswolds, North Oxfordshire, you know, and that's probably going to be like, what, the middle of France by 2050? Mm. And, and so we are trying to design for that, um, as well as trying to reduce emissions from in use and embodied energy so i mean it's it gets quite difficult as i'm sure you're aware it gets quite a demanding sort of step change in the complexity of what, what you're trying to achieve and, and the number of thoughts that you need to try and cram into every square inch of your building or your concept but but yeah no we're definitely trying to, to operate on both with both scenarios and i mean i've jumped in probably two foot into this rather than giving uh i think most of our listeners will be familiar with who you are um but I don't know, I'm kind of intrigued to know how you would describe yourself. Uh, I have to say, when I, when I came across, it was actually through a client of ours, um, uh, your own offices, Blackburn Studios. I didn't expect a high pro, because I, I don't watch as much telly as I should. Uh, so I wasn't as aware of your work, ridiculous as, as, as I should have been. I, 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 of course, knew of you. Um, but to find a kind of high profile, uh, well-known, uh, architect, uh, doing the sustainable stuff well, and, you know, like in very, it's very obvious to see that it's, that it's done well and, and very considered. That's not supposed to be the way it is. You know, it's not, it's, uh, it's, you're, you're not meant to be nerdy about these things, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. who are, who are you, would you say? And, and, uh, and right. Okay. Um, uh, uh, my, my name is Charlie Luxton. I run a company called Charlie Luxton Design. We're a 10-person architecture practice. Uh, I'm not a qualified architect. I did my master's at the Royal College of Art, and then I've worked for myself ever since, and getting a part three never seemed to make much sense. Um, we so uh, and, and alongside building my, my business, and we're 18 this year. We're having an 18th birthday party in a couple of weeks um, to Charlie Luxton Designers. I've also been like doing a lot of telly um, around sustainability and, and and more latterly mainly around property, as I think as the the mainstream industry sort of got a bit bored with with the idea of really focusing on sustainability as a television subject. And and you know television gets very bored with things very quickly. And and so I've been really lucky in that I've I've, I've spent twenty years traveling around the country and and Europe and the world, um, looking at amazing architecture. It's been an absolute honor, and I've used that opportunity to build an architecture practice and and i have to say if it hadn't been for telly i think my architecture practice would have gone out of business uh many times in the first few years of starting um we're now sort of a proper grown-up proper you know proper business but to begin with we certainly weren't and that allowed us to be very to do a lot of learning um and so i mean the thing is i i really i fell into tv by accident i didn't want to be on telly i didn't like being filmed but i i was doing my masters and a friend of mine's a, an art, a film director a very very successful film director and um and i was he was on, living on a sofa around the corner and i went around and he said um i want to apply for a five grand to make a short film but the idea i've written is too expensive and so we had a cup of coffee and came up with this idea it was just before the millennium about what happened to all those 
people that the millennium didn't go well for because everyone's going to have this amazing dream but someone's car's going to break down and all these kind of silly things we made this silly film in a bar of all these people sort of left the wash-ups of life and for various reasons and i really enjoyed it i loved it i love the collaboration because architecture certainly at university is really not at all collaborative mm. it was wonderfully collaborative it was really dynamic it was really fast it happened quickly I did a couple of films and then there was a note on the notice board at the Royal College saying we're looking for uh, someone to present a Channel 5 series. And I thought, I don't want to be on telly, but I want to see what a production company looks like, like when the grown-ups do it rather than borrowing kit and doing it in cafes and making it up. And I went down and did this interview and it, and it went, oh, that was great. Forget about that and carried on. And then about a month later, I got a, a phone call saying, you got the job, you got to start. I was like, oh my God, I've got to finish my master's. <laughs> and that was in 2000 and I finished that managed to scrape through my masters and then, you know, I, I've made the telly for 20 years, but it, that was just an aside and, and I've always had a business on the side and I've always used it to give me space to learn and study and visit places. And I, and I, I, I just love designing. I love designing. I love problem solving and I love the discipline that, that sustainability gives in a way, you know, it's, it's a really good moral compass for doing architecture. So often you look at buildings and you're like, yeah, sure, but why? Like, what did you do that for? I mean, I just don't, I just, why are you doing that? Like, it just seems grotesque in some places, misguided in others, and just rubbish in others, you know? And, and some, don't get me wrong, like, there's loads of brilliant buildings. But I, I just think this rigor of, of a kind of a, a, a kind of truly scientific background to the value systems that we apply is really, really helpful for architecture. Mm. You know, we don't do enough post-occupancy analysis. We don't know that these buildings work. I remember sitting at an award service. I used to like host you know, like the Sterling Prize and I'd like interview someone and be a Vox Pop about, oh, la, this is amazing. And I remember sitting there with this room full of very, you know, the greatest of architecture nominally. And this picture coming up and I didn't know what it was. Everyone just went, ooh. And I remember thinking like, you don't even know what that is. You don't know how well it works. You don't know if it's comfortable. You don't know if it's functional. You know nothing. You are just consuming this with your eyes. And that is not what architecture is about. And it was a kind of real epiphany moment of, oh, my God, we've got to sort this out. We've got to change the way we're operating. And that was a flipping big round. I do apologize. That, that's just going at it 100 miles. Why are you apologizing for that's, that? That's uh, it's really interesting. Um, I, and it brings for me one of my kind of um, pet subjects, I suppose, is is the word design and what it means uh, and what it's taken to mean in architecture, for instance. You know, um, in other words, it's it's kind of divorced of notions like like sustainability, for instance. You know, and and uh, the the the, the performance it's it's conceived of in sort of aesthetic terms, or and I guess there's a there's a, there's a architectural kind of canon like sort of approach to to the conception of the design um, and i don't understand how that how you could for me it seems it should be an all-encompassing term that takes maybe i'm wrong i don't know but it, that, that takes account of all the you know uh, of of other aspects and i think surely design is about how you 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 tackle these challenges see you you um you you produce you produce something extraordinary still in spite of these restrictions you know yeah yeah and i think I mean, I found the Royal College of Art a, a quite a difficult architecture education the, the two years there, I, 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 for many reasons. 
But what was extraordinary about it was actually being immersed in with product designers and industrial design engineers. And I think there was an and automotive designer. Now, there's an element of all of those things that drift into that sort of like fine, but why are you doing that? But there's an element of deep rigor and functional and functional beauty that actually was really interesting to be around. Um, and, and that was fascinating for me. Um, I, I, I tell you one of the, there is that, but you know the things that shine out across the architectural canon seem to you know seem to manage to do both. So for me, like a really inspiring building was the Salt Institute by Louis Kahn. Mm. You know, it's a very beautiful building, San Diego. You look at the pictures and you're just like, and I always saw it just as the main sort of pictures. It's a it's a research laboratory with these incredible teaching rooms, and it's in this beautiful sunshine. It's concrete. I mean, you know, it's built in the sixties, so sustainability was a slightly different. But when I went to visit it, I, I didn't quite realize how extraordinarily advanced it was from a functional space. So what, what Khan did is he developed all these research laboratories because um, Salt was the guy who developed the polio vaccine and it was a research laboratory. And so you have these big block lab research laboratories, these beautiful like office rooms and you know meeting rooms and you know des I mean, design, designing molecules and what have you off them. It's stunning. But what they did, and you think it's beautiful, but what they did that was so clever is that in the laboratory, they had a floor of um, laboratories and then they had a half floor for servicing and a floor of laboratory and a half floor. And they kind of came up with this from scratch. The reason being is that you could redo all of the servicing of the building while it was still operating and literally over a weekend sort of unplug one set of services, put on a new set of services and then carry it on out. And these were really beautifully considered spaces both aesthetically and functionally. And it became like a really defining way in which they do these kind of buildings. Han was like in his 40s, had never done a laboratory before. The guy who actually built it, I can't remember saying, a guy called Jack, and I was lucky enough to interview him. He was 26 when he ran that site. And it was just inspiring that these people were using logic and really rigorous good design, both aesthetically and functionally, to create probably one of the best buildings of the 20th century. And it was you know, it was amazing. It was all inspiring that, you know, we can mix beauty and function. It was a kind of a life affirming moment, I think. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so your sense of the architectural school that you, uh, that you're at, um, my sense of architectural schools, uh, has always been that, uh, I, I've probably said this on the podcast before, but, um, um, you know, Ben Goldacre, the, uh, the journalist and medical doctor, um, yeah, he, um, he, uh, was, employed by he, he he was commissioned um by uh michael gove of all people um to write a white paper years ago on um, evidence-based education and applying the principles of evidence-based medicine to to educational policies see whether whether we'll test one policy out against another and see 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 which work better and so on um and in the foreword to that paper he talked about um the advent of randomized controlled trials in the early part of the 20th century and uh, you know the, the, the beginnings of evidence-based medicine and how the pillar figures in medicine, like the heads of the Royal Colleges, the surgeons and so on, were really against it um, because they've been these authority, un unimpeachable, un unquestionable authority figures uh, in their profession. Um, and this was sort of subversive for them. And Goldacre described it as the transition from eminence-based medicine to evidence-based medicine. And I think that kind of thing, for me, you know, uh, even 
even to an extent within kind of notionally sustainable architecture, there's a lot of kind of long-standing kind of tropes and conventions that you know uh, haven't necessarily been been shown to perform to to to, to, to be uh, to, to actually work in reality. Um, but that doesn't stop them from being um, kind of promulgated from uh, you know from, for instance, architectural schools. Mm. I think I think the issue with architecture, certainly sustainability education in architecture schools, is that it's moving very quickly. Yeah, and it's very hard to keep education sort of current. I think is part of the issue because you know what we're doing now, like yes, visiting professors and all that, and that, but that's really hard to do. I think to keep everyone current. My honest opinion is that I think the degree is probably a very valid exercise in education and design yeah. critique and learning how to present your work. And maybe that should be a four-year degree. I don't know. My sense that five years of full-time education, I think, is 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 from another age, is my honest opinion. And I, I think it should be possibly a three-year and then a three-year part-time where you're working in a practice or, you know, I, I think I think I think we or, or longer. But I think, you know, we get we get really good people, you know, we're very lucky we get good people that come and join us and they're they're excellent. Mm. It's still a lot of work to do. There's still so much to learn because it's such a varied in you know, such a varied profession uh, with so many different strands. That I sort of feel like sitting in a slightly hermetically sealed, although, you know, not quite hermetically, but you know, in a, in, in a kind of tower, even though it's poor. It's probably quite leaky, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I know what you mean, metaphorically, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's not is not is not um, is not necessarily the best way to educate architects. I, I, I do, I do question that. But you know, what do I know? <clears throat> sorry, sorry about my voice. By the way, I have a, a cold today, so my voice is a bit off. But uh, I was wondering if um, in these course, in this architect, architectural education, is there anything in there about challenging client briefs? Because what I know from experience is that we do not challenge the briefs enough. So yes, you're, you're right that we're maybe not. It's hard to learn about sustainability because of the speed at which we're going. But I have spoken to enough architectural firms to know that also architects are potentially not pushing their clients enough and letting them get away with beautiful but completely unfunctional design. So are, are you being taught that in, in university? Well, when, do, when does it get taught, if at all? I mean, look, I was educated 20 years ago. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, learning, but, yeah. but one thing I would say, is that if you ask an architect to solve a problem, he'll pretty much always come up with a building, and that's mm -hmm. you know, and that's the issue. Yeah, that's the <laughs> issue, right? And and that's a that's my line, by the way. I use that with my clients a lot, so don't tell anyone. But it's a really good line to say, look, we're not just going to come up with a building for you necessarily, because if you don't need a building, that's brilliant from an environmental perspective. That's the best. If like what I'm really about is sustainability, not building something's brilliant. Yeah. So I, I think that's part of the issue is that architects tend to solve the problem with a building and actually you don't need to. And, and I think that is one of the things that the RCA, you know, was very good at is challenging those things um, when I was there. Um, and, and I think we need to do more of that. And I think it will become part of the role of architects, I hope. And I think they should probably just be designers to, to, to really think about how these offices work in the wider context. So we're working on a, we're working on a building at the moment for a really amazing um, ethical finance firm and they're a B Corp and they're, employee-owned trust and they've got a load of money in a, in a in a charitable trust and they've given a load of money away to charity over a million quid in the last five or six years or something and they but they only work in the office like two and a half days a week on average per mm. person and they're like we really want a sustainable building and we're like yeah a building that's empty four and a half days mm -hmm. a week is not sustainable no matter mm -hmm. what 
what we do, basically. And they're like, yeah, no, we can see that. So alongside developing an office for them, we're also developing a community outreach program with education for kids and other people in the finance industry and the local community and a growing opportunity for people in the local area to, to, to have access to a market garden area. So, you know, I think that's where that's when it gets interesting, right? When you're not, yes, we're building a building and the building comes out as a byproduct, but actually what we're doing is developing an, a different approach to a network. And that also includes looking at a man, landscape management plan for 22 acres to, to sort of offset the carbon and produce food as well as biodiversity. So that's when it's like, that's when architecture is the best job in the world. Mm. And what I find sort of, and that's what I think people need to understand that it gets so much more interesting as a designer, as an architect, whatever, when you sort of slightly step out of that box and understand how the building operates in the wider context, you know. Kind of almost who are your clients in that case? Because, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it, there's lots of different other users you're considering. Uh, yeah. Amazing. We, we did a house for someone, you know, and that's not just about an office building. We did a house for someone recently and they draw, it was actually two plots. They were trying to bring together and build a big house. And I sat there and I said, look, Mark, why do you want such a big house? Like your kids have left home. Why do you want a massive house? Why don't you have like a three-bed house and a two-bed house and connect them with a sort of thing that you can shut off so you can have an Airbnb income and you can go and live in that and you can have it open up at Christmas and New Year and you can have it as one big house, you can have two little houses and you don't have to heat that and blah, blah, blah. So, oh yeah, that's so much more than one big house. It's just bloody empty and I rattle around in. And so, you know, again, it's like, yes, we ended up with a building, but we challenged the brief completely about what, they wanted and how they were going to answer their problem. And, and that's the other thing we always do with our clients. Whenever they come and they've got an idea of a solution, we go, that's all brilliant. And we listen and go, that's awesome. And then we go, okay, can we just step back? Like, what is the problem you've yeah. got? Like, forget it's a building that you think is going to solve it. What are the problems? Like, what's the thing? And, and I think that is a really good exercise that I wish more people would do. This is exactly in Alex's uh, area, I think. Because uh, Alex, is, uh, we, we've a consultancy off the back of this podcast, and Alex is well. You describe who you are, Alex, but it's Alex's big thing is user research and um, putting the user at the center. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, I'm all about what I <clears throat> what we now call deep user research is. We're part of a generation where we've been using data and analytics to infer human behavior and. I'm strongly of the belief that actually we need to start or re resume talking to people and hearing their stories. And and as you say, exactly, is, is understanding what these people want, what their stories are, what the problem is. Or often, as I say to our clients, is why should they care about what you're trying to give them? Like, you know, what, why are they going to care about it? And then suddenly you go, oh, actually, yes, you're right. The solution that we're trying to put in front of them is the one that I want for myself because I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm assuming that my audience is me and maybe my mates. Um, but suddenly when you talk to other people, you go out and talk to different audiences, you get the stories out there, you get the nuance and, and all of a sudden the whole thing changes and your perspective gets just moved around quite drastically sometimes. And that's when you can innovate rather than being in that famous echo chamber of everyone just thinking that we should be doing the same thing as everyone else. Yeah. And it's funny that, 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 that time, and I think, you know, there's a huge pressure not to do that stuff because it's like, oh, well, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's very difficult, isn't it? To launch into into something like interviewing people and talking to people and recording conversations with the hope that you'll find something out. And we've done it a few times. We, we did it. We did exactly this for a, there's a, there's a, there's a grade one stately home nearby called, uh, 
called Ditchley Park. And it, it's where Churchill spent a lot of the war and negotiated the land lease deals. And it's this extraordinary institution. And they do these um, 12 events a year where they look at issues facing liberal democracy. And it might be women in power. It might be nuclear waste. It might be, you know, microfinance. I mean, it's extraordinary depth and breadth that they cover. And they came to us and they were like, oh, we've got this, we've got this um, lecture theatre. We want to revamp this lecture theatre. And we're like, all right, uh, can we just come in and talk to everyone about that? And they were like, yeah, why? Because we just want to talk to everyone. Like, just understand how it's going to work. And then we went in and went, how's that going to work? Is that going to work? What, how are we going to use it? Why are you going to do it? And then we ended up with this completely different thing where we basically made the library into a lecture theatre and then proposed making the lecture theatre into their new offices and then moving new bedrooms upstairs and not converting a whole new building out in the landscape. And they were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's like, no, no, you told us this. Like, you told us these answers. We just listened and put them back to you. And then I think it's, you know, it's the the best way to get buy-in and also the best way to get insight is you know exactly as you say it seems it's quite uncommon though i mean well i mean in fairness i, I shouldn't be maligning um a whole industry because there's loads of amazing architects out there loads of uh, amazing uh people across the supply chain who, who are taking these kinds of approaches uh, increasingly but um i wondered i wondered whether your broadcasting career uh which is invariably involves listening to people talk to people um uh, you know, and finding out how buildings have worked out or not, I suppose. Um, uh, do you think that's uh, informed the direction that, that the practice has taken? I think uh, enormously, really. Uh, I mean, the fact that I, on one series alone, I've made, I don't know, 20 series, but on one program alone, I covered 99 builds. And they weren't builds. One of them I designed. One of them was a special and I worked on the project. Um, but no, it covered 99 projects where I saw them three, four times through their project. And, you know, ranging from extraordinary to, quite frankly, pretty not so great. <laughs> but, but the thing that you learn is that it's really hard to make a building. It's really hard to make a good building. Uh, but, and, and also just, just looking at the sort of mistakes and the decision making and the research and where the problems came up. I think it's been the most amazing education, uh, extraordinary education. And, and the thing that has really come out of it for me is, is, is that architecture fees are some of the best money you'll ever spend. And I know that's rich coming from an architect or <laughs> architectural designer. I'm not an architect, but you know, for someone in the design profession, but almost invariably when you go to these projects and they're, they, they, they're successful, there's a very good design eye somewhere in there. And that might not be, the person it might be the person building the house but they they're approaching it with a rigor that is akin of a design professional and they're investing the time i mean that's effectively what you're paying isn't it for design fees is somebody to spend the time mm. to work through these problems on paper before you get to site now if you can do that yourself great you don't need an architect or a designer or a project manager or whatever but it, most people do and I, and I just really feel we totally undervalue the role of design in the quality of buildings and i, and I hope one of the things that will come out of sustainability is is that you just can't do it without proper design input and that's the big well, people try but, well <laughs> they do try yeah. no but the increasing level of, of, of you know even just like the new in the uk and in england now we've got part o so there's this overheating regulation okay which requires a significant amount of analysis which you know the kind of stuff we've been doing with phpp for years the reason we started doing phpp to be honest was overheating analysis yeah. to understand it yeah because you know, you can make a building easy to heat. That's not beyond the wit of somebody, you know, it's actually hard to keep it cool. 
Mm. We've been looking for the cooling side of it more than the heating side of it for years. And, and now they're demanding that you show that with figures. And that means people have to start doing it properly. You know, little changes like that, whether they mean it or not, are the things that give me hope that we're going to start turning the corner. So we won't see too many like double height uh, windows, unopening windows, kind of south or southwest facing designs in your uh, in your projects. No, uh, not without um, not without some active shading. Okay, yeah, I'm quite a big fan of active shading, like external louvers. I know some people don't like them, but I've got them on my house. They've been in five years. Yeah. One motor went wrong after a month or two and the other has been fine ever since. And it just, it, you know, we live in quite a difficult climate because of the, the variation in the, um, uh, uh, you know, the angle of the sun. It's, it's yeah. really hard. And the lack but of light. It's a, it's a cultural thing, isn't it? I grew up in France, in the south of France. So talking about overheating in the summer, um, I'm, I've lived it a lot, a lot. And the, the cultural thing to do is to have shutters everywhere and yeah. you, you have a routine in the morning, you wake up early, you open everything up, you make sure that the cold air comes in. And then when it gets a bit hotter, you close them and not quite to let the light in. And eventually the whole afternoon, you close everything yep. so that you can save all that lovely cool coolness inside. Yeah. And it's funny that in England, culturally, that's not the case. I've always found that in the news, especially last year, or yes, it was last year, last summer, when there was a lot of overheating and everyone's saying, close your, uh, your curtains. But the problem with that is that you're just creating hyperheated air between the curtains and the window. Whereas actually external shading is the only solution. And it's funny because culturally we're completely against it. We do not want shutters anywhere near our hopes it feels in England or in the UK. Yeah, I think, I think, I, I mean, I think it's changing. I mean, you know, we, we, we do a lot of it. Obviously we do a lot of, you know, that, that's the, that's where you end up if you can't, that's you get out of jail. Mm-hmm. But equally, you know, and I think this is what the great thing about, we're slightly morphed here into the benefits of thermal modeling, but what, what I love about the rigor of that approach of that thermal modeling is like, okay, there's a view there. Okay, it's losing some heat in winter, it's picking up too much heat in, in, in summer. But, oh my God, architecturally and joyously, we have to celebrate that view. But I understand the impacts of that. And I think that's a reasonable sacrifice. And therefore, I need to do a bit of gymnastics to make that work. Yeah. But it's that thing of actually understanding the implications of your design decisions. And I think that's the thing that's missing coming back to the rigor thing of like really understanding, I want to put this architectural flourish on something but what does that mean like energy wise performance wise you know what does that mean um or carbon wise and i think that's really when we're going to start getting a new level of intelligence in architecture i mean i found the whole blob architecture you know the guggenheim was extraordinary it, it was amazing as a built sculpture you know an art gallery an art object in itself and then there was a thousand poor imitations that were just bad buildings, I suspect, um, you know, I, I, that's a bit harsh, but I suspect. And, and, and the part, and I think, I think because everyone just went, oh, that the Guggenheim made a load of money. That's a great indicator of success. Let's try and do these things. And it's a law of diminishing returns. Uh, the reason, uh, the, the reason I bring that up is I think, I think that if we're starting to analyze these buildings and give yourself a discipline to design, I think we're all better designers. You know, the blank sheet of paper is an absolute terror, you know, <laughs> and if you create, if you create paradigms in which to work because of energy overheating, you know, then, then I think we get better buildings. Well, that's it. I find it much easier to respond to something than to create something from, you know, from out of nothing, you know, um, and happens to be uh, a better position from a sustainability perspective as well, obviously, because you've got all these existing resources to kind of try and work with and problems to kind of try and solve. 
Um, yeah, I'm we actually on the overheating front, and again, I'm sorry for repeating myself to any of our more uh, devoted listeners. Um, uh, there's a project that we wrote about in, in Camden, Charlie, a few years ago um, uh, uh, on Bayham Street in Camden. Um, I won't talk about it in detail. We'll conclude it in the show notes. Um, but this is a, a, a an old shoe factory, an LO Shoes. They used to make these high-backed shoes for the, for the, for the Beatles and Wilbers in the 60s. And um, it was converted into high-end flats. And the southwest facing single aspect and uh, massive overheating problem. Um, operative temperatures of 47.5 degrees recorded in an unheated, unoccupied building. This is during a, a, a monitoring study. Um, but the positive from that was that... Um, External blinds were fitted, just not heavy-duty shutters, external Venetian blinds were, were, were fitted to one of the rooms, um, identical to this room. Um, on the same day, at the same time when, when this, this room was achieving 47 and a half, the room with external blinds peaked at, I think, 28 or 29. And this is mm. still too hot, but, you know, this is... Um, uh, it's totally unconsidered. It's not yeah, going to kill you, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so we... So we We've got quite a lot of glazing, but because it's single aspect, because we're built into our house is built into a hillside, and again, we can, you know they put notes, put it, put a link in the notes, and and we it's it's quite a lot of concrete, a lot, a lot of GGBS, so granulated ground blast furnace slag concrete, because it was in the hill, so using alternative lower carbon um, solutions seemed quite problematic. Um, but what we do is uh, we we yeah we exactly as Alex was saying we 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 use roof lights overnight, open some cracks in windows, get that through ventilation, chill it down to like 21 in the morning, close it down all day. And actually I close the windows during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Close the blinds. They're, they're louvers and they shut off completely. Um, And I actually covered over the big, uh, there's a reasonably large roof light and I covered that over in the light, in the the, the heat wave last in a heat wave. I'll cover it over. Okay. Jump on the roof because it's grass roof and you can climb onto it. walk onto it basically just cover that over. And we topped out at 26 for like uh, about five hours in the 41 degree day, wow. which I thought was with no cooling and that which was pretty, worked pretty well, but there was a maintenance, <laughs> you know, I had to open this and shut that. But given that was super extreme, uh, you know, it was not onerous. And I think, I think external loops are extraordinary and we, we are putting them into more yeah. and more. You're kind of operating a building like you're sailing a ship or something like that. Yeah. It reminds me of um, there's a, a, an Irish architect, a bit of a friend of the show called John Moorhead, who, whose work I think you'd, you'd enjoy, Charlie. He, um, he's at this kind of rare intersection of, um, uh, which I think you're at as well, uh, of uh, the, the designy, what would be regarded traditionally as the designy stuff, the, the stuff that our, other architects, kind of architectural designers, uh, who are over. Um, but uh, he's also really good at the anarchy stuff, you know. Um, he's a, a proper building physics nerd in the best possible uh, sense. Um, and um, he, he's, he, he, so he does these architecturally expressive passive house projects. He does a lot of expert witness work as well these days on, on uh, attempts at low energy building gone wrong. Which, and there's some scary stuff happening. Um, but he, um, I remember having a conversation with him, another friend of his from the UK, who I won't name, who... Um, who uh, is a great advocate of passive house, but who argues for houses to be designed like a child would draw them, like small windows, simple forms, you know. And and John's attitude to that was like, well, he'd have us all eating like you know, surviving off nutrient tablets rather than meals, yeah. <laughs> so called the joy out of life. 
So yeah. there, there is a balance there, I think, sometimes, you know. Absolutely. And, and I think that's, yeah, that's the point I was trying to make. But when you analyze it, you, you understand what the sacrifices or the costs that you're making to make good architecture, you know, to make the spirit soar. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I agree. I mean, I think, I think part of the problem has been with sustainability, you know, over the years is it's always been seen as being about no. No, you can't eat that. No, you can't fly there. No, you can't. And, and, yeah. and I think I, I've, I really struggle with that. And I think we need to turn that around and start saying, actually, this is about more. This can be about more. This can be about you know, better places to live. And, and, and it's, when we talk to our clients about low energy buildings, there's, it, it's very much two parts, right? So we talk about the, you know, this being kind to the environment with a big E, but also your local environment with a small E, because low energy buildings are just more comfortable. Mm. better to be in it's better space there's less flux of energy around the place there's less drafts there's less dust if you've got mvhr yeah. um mold you know and there's less it's just better right and as soon as people understand it's not about just saving the planet that's almost a byproduct i know living in a better house like better space and people are so obsessed with the payback you know like the payback on these glazing or the pay when was the last time anyone like the payback on driving a really nice car they're yeah. not interested in that. You know, it's like, it's about quality. And I think that's the conversation we need to start talking about sustainability in that way, that it is a better, 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 better quality space and a better environment in which to live, in my opinion. It's about comfort. That's the yeah. thing we, we often mention on podcasts is that we have to stop talking about the numbers because I don't think many people really understand or appreciate them that much <clears throat> we, what we need to tell to, to the people who are actually using these buildings is you will be more comfortable i'm not going to repeat what you've just said because you've said it so so well but it is about the the comfort metric if you want to give it that term we we yeah like we live in a stone part of the country so the houses are built in stone and like and you know you go around to people's houses in winter you're like oh Oh my God, it's going to be freezing or boiling. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's so uncomfortable. Can they come to ours? Because it's like really just nice. And <laughs> have you gone soft? Have you, you know, have, have you houses, soft? don't get me wrong. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful houses and all that. But it's just like, oh, it's hot and cold and a bit. <laughs> but have you gone soft since you've gone? I don't know how long you've been living. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah, completely soft. But I mean, you know, and it's funny. So our office, you know, you mentioned our office, so we, we've just done a, a big project on rebuilding our office, um, and it was a, it was an old equestrian barn, you know, tin shed from the sixties and extended a bit in the late sixties and extended in the early eighties, and a bit of it was asbestos, a bit of it was cement panel, and it, the, all the land had been sort of eaten completely, sort of balled by the horses, and it was really trashed. And we bought it and we uh, have converted it into it. Mean, it's not certified, but it seems like it, it complies with passive. And it's energy positive and it's got, we've, we've done some carbon modeling. The embodied energy seems incredibly low. And we, we think with a bit of careful management of the land, three and a half acres, which we're doing to try and drive up sequestration, grow trees, that it will be carbon neutral over sort of 20, 30 years, completely carbon neutral. And what what's funny about that is that we've got an MVHR and we've got CO2 monitoring. Okay. So the people in the office can see how much CO2 is in the air. And as soon as it goes over 800 parts, it ups the MVHR. And it's so funny, after a few weeks, people are going, oh I, oh, I think the CO2 is getting a bit high. And they wander over and they check, oh, yeah, it's getting near 800. And they're like, you would never have noticed this before, but you suddenly your whole, like, your whole sort of the way you qualify what is good and bad changes. And they're all, they're all CO2 experts now. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm the same with temperature with CO2. I'm like, oh, it's a bit, mm, not sure. 
And it's a funny one that I actually, I, I, I haven't really uh, looked into this enough yet, but I kind of wonder uh, what the impact is going to be of having of people having constant access, interface access or whatever to this kind of data. If you're of a kind of a nervous disposition, for instance, you know, and you get some guests coming over um, and all of a sudden you get over a thousand or 1500 ppm of CO2, uh, what's this going to do to people's mental health? <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully nothing because it's fine. Yeah. It's like yeah. a window. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's that thing about it's a bit stuffy in here. You've been doing it for years, you know. I know it's knowing it's knowing something that, and you would have had a much higher level beforehand. Yeah, you know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah. it's just um, you know, some people who are who are inclined towards uh, t- towards that way of thinking. Uh, but no, I, I'm not arguing against data. It's, it's, no, 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 no. no. Yeah. No, and, and it is one of those things you, you have to kind of. I think where it's very interesting is we've started doing quite a lot of um, air monitoring in, in projects. We've got these things called they're called air things waves. I mean, there's other ones, but that's just, we just bought these ones because they were I don't know like 160 quid, and yeah. they do radon because we're in a radon area. Oh yeah, humidity, CO2, VOC, temperature, pressure, and they're and they're amazing. You just plop this little thing in and you start getting it on your phone and you can monitor and it's really interesting to go into houses and start analyzing their air quality and how the buildings are functioning as they stand and then you know after you finish the job going in and checking your work and, and understanding where the co2 is and or where, sorry where all the various matrix are but it's really it's a fascinating process and i think it's the kind of thing that architecture has massively missed um you know that, that actually I think it's the biggest failing of our profession is not going back and learning from our mistakes. I think we're sort of such like onwards, <laughs> always onwards. Yeah. Well, you, you have to be confident that you're going to get good results, I suppose, if you're going to be willing to do that kind of monitoring. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I know that's a ridiculous way to look at things, but I think, I, I think my sense is that there's, a, uh, aside from the fact that, uh, if it's in the fees for projects to include post occupancy evaluation, it's it always got it's always dropped yeah um yeah uh it's a kind of worms potentially you know uh yeah. to find out whether you, whether you're whether you're building work it was fascinating that you're um uh you're mentioning radon my sense like that is a big issue in ireland um it's 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 got a lot of public attention in ireland because again we have we have a lot of kind of high radon areas um but um uh it doesn't seem to have caught public's attention in the same way in the UK and yet from what I you know I've heard people in the industry say that it's not really so much a problem from looking at the radon maps it looks like actually quite there are quite large chunks of the UK where where radon you know could be a significant health risk you know yep there is yeah definitely uh, I think it's a big issue that, that that is not necessarily being being addressed uh and, and so you know, radon just in case anyone doesn't know radon is a sort of a radioactive gas that comes bizarrely comes up out of certain rock stratas but then sort of settles it's quite confusing right <laughs> mm. it's up and then sits down but you know yeah so we we obviously because we've i've lived here uh, you know, for 17 years in the radon area we do a lot of detailing around that and you know good detailing should help but old buildings are really difficult you know even when you do everything it's still that you know 200 becquerels or whatever it is it's quite hard to mm. get it down to zero without putting full pressurized pumps and stuff. But no, I think we're not, we're not tackling it, but I think it's systematic of a, or symptomatic, should I say, of a general lack of care about the internal air quality of our buildings. I saw a, um, a lecture by, um, I can't remember her name, but a wonderful woman. And she was talking about the 
health impacts on the Irish uh, on the Welsh economy from poor quality housing. And they reckon that it costs the Welsh economy about a billion quid a year, mm. for like um, damp and cold housing because of absenteeism, uh, illness, long-term illness, mm. um, uh, energy losses and everything. And they reckon there's probably a four to one return on investment on poor quality housing. So in a country where you've got the NHS and you've got quite rightly, your, 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 you've got um, that sick pay and all these kind of things to not be tackling low quality housing just is such an own goal. It's incredible. And, but I don't think we're, you know, we've not cared about it. We've not no. really understood it. Well, why don't, why don't we know? Because we talk about it so much. I mean, it's, especially now, but over the last 10 years, it's been in the news all the time, the amount of research and articles published about this analysis and this thing that we tested and we found that it's clearly doing something negative and bad to, to the populations. Why are we still at a stage where it seems to be not, as you say, why has it not been accepted yet? Why are people not saying, of course, this is something we need to fix? I really don't know. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm at a loss. I mean, you know, that, that tragic case of that kid dying from black mold. Yeah. I mean, that, that you know, the, the great irony of that is everyone ran around going, oh my God, this child, you know, tragically has died quite rightly. Yeah. But there's, there's tens of thousands of people living with black mold. that has got long-term health implications. It's just, yeah. you know, making their lives poorer, making them long-term ill. And we are, as a country, picking up the bills for that. And I don't mean that in a careless way. I mean that it's like, the money is there problem before it's a problem. The cost and the human suffering could be prevented yeah. through, yeah. through a smarter approach. I mean, it's not just the UK. I, I think of an example, uh, and this really should depress me um, uh, more than it has, but I'm, uh, so um, one of the, so the Green Party in Ireland, um, thanks to uh, the PR system that we have here, uh, you know, the proportional representation system, for our uh in our our kind of national parliament the, the doyle uh the Green party get into government sometimes they, they're in, in for the second time now and one of the uh, my local td equivalent to an mp um O'Sheen smith is uh who i'll be friendly with he um he's a minister now in, minister for state in, um in public expenditure of the government and before he got his job in government um and he's brilliant guy brilliant kind of politician and you know real policy one because a lot of the greens tend to be um he um he worked at one of the main hospitals in dublin in uh in uh his database design and he um he had this simple little just brilliant idea to uh set up systems so that if you come into this hospital st vincent's um into the a e section and you register um what he what he was doing was getting people to uh, give their their postcode, the condition that you know the health condition that they were reporting with, and the idea then was to try and map out and see if they could find clustering of conditions based on environmental factors. Mm. Oh, it's such a brilliant idea, and yet, and uh, you know, nothing's happened with it since he's been in government, and now mm. he's got a different portfolio now. But you know. Um, such an obvious thing to do, an obviously mm. a beneficial thing. Um, but just connecting the dots seems to be such a fundamental problem throughout, you know, humanity. <laughs> but I think, I think again, I, I feel like this might be an issue that gets dealt with through other means. And what, what I mean by that is I, I, I went up to talk to the Skipton Building Society recently. And as a building society, they are doing a complete carbon profile of their lending portfolio. So they're trying to understand, like, if we're lending you 150 grand in your house, what is the carbon intensity effectively the thing they end up owning? I mean, they own the house, right? Yeah. 
mm. effectively. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're effectively owning all this carbon emission and they're trying to understand what that is and they're trying to target the the worst performing houses and try and improve those. And and we know that the benefit of low energy housing is that they're they're, they're healthier. I mean that that's I mean I, I mean uh, I was talking to someone the other day and they, they pointed out that yeah the PHPP thing is half of its energy and half its health, but we sort of slightly forget the health side of it. We just focus on the energy side of it. But I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping that the carbon debate will drive us to improving the quality of these houses. Um is what I'm hoping and that that, that maybe that's a way that we'll pick up on this seemingly intractable issue of poor quality housing, generally for people from lower socioeconomic, uh, you know, uh, populations, which is sort of a, a real problem. I'd like to think, um, I don't know about you as a broadcaster in terms of how you approach this, but when we write about these kinds of buildings, bearing in mind what you said about focusing on benefits and, um, you know, uh, just trying trying to work out how how to motivate people to 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 make the behavioral changes that we need um i think for instance i used to be um not long after i started the magazine uh many years 20 years ago i started smoking and my wife as well they linked those two things <laughs> yeah i think so actually actually um stupidly um some sort of tired notion of a, 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 no, a no, stupid notion of a tired old hack you know working ridiculous hours um but um, I tried to quit through willpower uh, a couple of times and failed miserably within hours. And then I read an appallingly written book, I thought, when I was reading it, the Alan Carr famous book, The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. Um, and you know, he writes like a used car salesman or wrote like a used car salesman. But it worked. And it worked because because he's telling you you can do it um, and it's easy. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm kind of brainwashing you. No, I'm not suggesting that we brainwash our readers. Far from it, for God's sake. Um, but um, what we're trying to do is is uh, is find nuggets or stories to to to, to show people. To, to, you know, I always look for them when we're writing my building. So I'll be talking to you about that. We're going to be. Um, Friday has very kindly agreed to let us write about um, Blackburn Studios. This is the, the, the his Charlie Looks and Designs uh, office that he was talking about um, uh, in the next issue of Passive House Plus. Um, and I'm, I'll be trying to mine stories out of you. You know, like we'll have we'll, we'll, they stick with you. When I find when you're when you're um, writing uh, about a project like this, when you're reading about it, much more than the the facts uh, of, of the project do. Stuff like um. Like the couple in, uh, I may have mentioned this to an email already, couple in, in Cork, Kenny Cork, or Cork City in Ireland, who retrofitted their house and talked about how beforehand it was like, because they lived in the house before it was retrofitted, it was like you were taking your life into your hands to go make a cup of, cup of tea and you had to microwave the Nutella before you could spread it for the kids, you know? Um, or, you know, or uh, there's kind of countless little stories that we get about people who, you know, sending the plumber away over Christmas in a passive house after the boiler breaks down because they didn't want the hassle of having a plumber come come into their house. You know, those those kinds of things. I think they're great for stopping people to make them to kind of understand that it you're, it can be different. You, you can expect more of your buildings. It can be a, a different way of living. You know. So I don't know in, in the context of your 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 uh, since you've moved into this office, um, how do how do you think? I mean, you're you're obviously sold in it. Have you spoken to? Have you got a sense from your colleagues on um, on what what their impression has been of the of the new home? I think it's kind of I think it's one of those things that 
I find passive houses, or, you know, very low energy houses or you know, passive equipment or whatever, are kind of weird in that they're kind of frictionless. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's like an absence of experience. And I don't mean that in a <laughs> negative sense. I mean, you're focused on the space, the, you know, the, the spaces, the, the view, you know, the conversation you're having, floor, whatever, because actually there is very little temperature. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's an absence. absence. Yeah. Yeah. There's an absence. And and so I suspect they they don't even really know. But I remember the old, we were in a little cottage that we actually did a deep retrofit on years and years ago. And the office was crammed into that. And it used to get really stuffy. And, you know, it was very warm, but it got really stuffy and it was tiny and tight. And I suspect here it's just like an absence experience. So it's really about light space and views. And I was having a meeting this morning. There was a deer like 10 meters away or 20 meters away. Sit in the field munching away on some wildflowers. I just planted the wildflowers. Get off. <laughs> no, that's what they're for. Deers to eat the wildflowers. <laughs> and, and so I think, I think the absence, I think, I think they would probably comment on, on absence experience and, and the new coffee machine, I suspect, is what they talk about more than anything else, <laughs> if I'm absolutely honest. <laughs> probably one of the biggest maybe, energy maybe, plans in the building, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe perhaps what you're saying there is that we should be focusing on, well, retrofitting some key public buildings where people can actually experience this for themselves. Because as you say, there's this sort of absence of temperature and I don't, I don't think I've actually been in a, in a passive house yet in my life. So I don't relate to what you're telling me here. I mean, I understand it in a sort of a, you know, an abstract way, of course, but I haven't lived it yet. So maybe if I could be ended up going into my local library and it turns out to be an absolutely amazing place where I, I feel like it's comfortable, it's warm, it's not stuffy, et cetera, et cetera. That could be a very interesting way of actually making it more accessible to people to understand and therefore want and demand the uh the the better uh more comfortable houses that we were talking about i mean i think one of the things you should probably do is is is, is do passive house retrofits on loads of holiday homes mm. oh, yeah. you might get like 40 people 40 you could get 40 converts 80 converts a year of like oh my god this is doable this is so comfortable this was absolutely amazing and and then you can take it back and, and you know i think it is that i mean it's one thing when you go into a public building but public buildings have a sort of minor absence of experience anyway because they're so high yes. service yeah. but if you're in a house you understand that's a relative experience to the one you have and it's completely calm and beautiful and warm and you can walk from one room to the other without you know then i think it's a very very applicable experience and we, we've actually got a little holiday place in cornwall that my brother and i built and that's very highly insulated and 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 i think people go and stay there and they are slightly blown away by the that that absence mm. and it's sort of a really weird way because absence sort of tends to ex- sort of tend to be negative, but I, I don't mean it in that in the in well, any way. As well, has like the absence of pain, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is a sort of very quite unnerving experience. But if you've not used it the first time, you you you, you have it. I think I couldn't agree with you more on the holiday home issue. Uh, so uh, one of my um, things I'm, I'm forever decrying is the lack of. You know the ability to take a house for a road test. You know, yeah. um, and um, it's such a lovely idea. I would have thought for for uh, you know some somebody with an Airbnb or whatever it might be to you know, or even if you're if you're if you're just holiday homes, so, you know, as an investment, the idea of a building like this, uh, uh, you you have. A time of the year during the winter, for instance, when you normally have no business, um, and you could be, if you marketed it right, a great opportunity to get would-be self-builders or retrofitters to 
experience it for themselves, you know. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that's something we start to see more of, you know. Well, I mean, it's, from holiday let sense, it, it makes sense economically because the problem with holiday lets is that people just turn the heating on, open the windows. Uh, and anyone who owns a holiday let knows that the bills are just off the scale because you're on holiday and you just, but it's quite hard to do that in a passive house or a very, very highly insulated house. It's very hard to, to sort of do that. So I think there's an economic driver for people to think about it. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think we do need to get people closer to these things. I think they need to experience it and understand that they're within their reach. It, I mean, I think in the, U, the UK, the whole retrofit thing has been so catastrophically badly handled. It's, it's almost parody of bad governance. I mean, it's, it's laughable really, which is a tragedy. Um, so for example, we live in the village of Hook Norton. Um, we, we have a low carbon group. And we have lent money. Are you near the kind of the, the Cameron and Brooks and Clarkson element, are you? Well, we're just outside of that, actually, thankfully. We're in the sort of real bit, a bit. We're, we're the other side. Of, yeah, we're a bit farther away from them. <laughs> we're in a real village with real um, people. <laughs> a village with a, a pub and a hairdresser and a butcher and a primary school and a brewery. And, a, you know, it's, a, it's great. But we, we've lent money to about 70 houses in the village to do low energy retrofit work. At a cost of about five thousand pounds, wow. eight years. I think the government spent fifty million pounds. These figures don't hold up. I, I think they're vaguely right. About fifty million pounds to. I, how, I think there's like five or seven hundred projects or something. I mean, it was it was lit. I mean, it might not be quite that bad, but it, it was absolutely jaw droppingly badly administered. And and I think you know how how we get money to the right areas of the economy and the skill set right just to start tackling all these houses so you go and stay in your holiday let and you experience that and you go i want that and then you can actually do that in the house is is a huge challenge but we've sort of failed miserably i mean in ireland what's going on with the retrofit situation Uh, we're making we've got a much more ambitious um uh, and steadfast ambition from government because we've got the greens in government um and uh in fairness there's broad cross-party political support for this. We had a citizens' assembly um, uh, on you know, climate, climate action uh, a couple of years ago, and, and this is one of the clear kind of recommendations. So we've got a clear government target. We've got, we're a nation of five million people in the Republic of Ireland, and um, we've got a target uh, to retrofit 500,000 homes to uh, a B2 rating on our national energy rating scale by 2030. Um, it's about a quarter of the housing stock, um, and um, there's a massive uh, sort of uh, budget set aside by government. I think it's, um, God, I, in fact, I, I'll probably get the figures wrong. Um, I think it's eight billion um, uh, is 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 the, the, the sum that are are set aside for it. Um, but uh, and we're making some headway. It's difficult. We're, there's new models being established for how, how to deliver it, but we've got, again, a policy wonk of a minister, the, the, the climate minister, Eamon Ryan, who's the leader of the Green Party, knows this stuff well. Um, they're bullish and they've got battle scars from the last time they were in government, um, and so they know kind of how to handle the, the Sir Humphreys and so on, the, you know, um, better. Um, and the officials, I think, are, are improving as well, to, be, to, to, to give them credit. Um, and also very, very fortunate that Eamon Ryan's, um, one of his policy advisors, a guy called Paul Kenny, uh, made his, uh, name really, uh, in this area, um, 
developing a scheme in, in Tipperary called Superhomes, not to be confused with the English Superhomes website, which is a specific approach to retrofit. Um, uh, and um, trying to find a way to, you know, find the sweet spot to make it possible to have a really ambitious retrofit and then decarbonization, but at a level that the, the Mrs. Murphy's and Mrs. Smith's or whatever of this world could actually afford, you know, mm. um, so that's, that's informed the direction of travel. And, um, I'm, I'm hopeful there's still mistakes being made and there's still lots of things that you can pick holes in, but, um, but there's a serious grown up attempt and long standing commitment. And the industry knows that there's certainty about this too, you know, which is great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's the key thing is, is, is uh, the things that give me hope from that is the idea of cross-party citizens assembly and then cross-party support. I mean, the sooner we pull this kind of issue out of the five-year political cycle, I mean, that's the only way we're going to solve it. it yeah. It's got to come out of the five-year political cycle. You've got to say, right, whatever your colour, party, you cannot fight a point score on this issue. Yeah, because it's just you're just going to take all the energy away from it, and nothing will happen. Yeah, um, and 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 so I think as soon as we can do that, and I, I'm hopeful that we might get a change of government, um, and that 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 change to whatever it might be will will actually start asking questions about about why we've been so poor at delivering this change. Mm. We're still talking about keeping to one and a half degrees, and we're there in four years. You know, there's such a disconnect between the conversation and the action that we need to change the approach. No, we, I think we also need to find ways to pitch it to people, whatever their political views. And I know that can seem very difficult. And if I was living in the UK, I probably would feel disheartened given what you've been through over the last six, seven years. Um, Look at that. It's been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Kieran Cuff, um, who's the MEP, we had him on a, a few few weeks ago, who's the MEP for Dublin, um, and the rapporteur um, for the European Parliament on the next provision of the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, which is the basis for the EPCs that you have in the UK and the Energy Performance. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he, he's leading the negotiations for the European Parliament on the next improvements to this. And by the way, whole life carbon calculation is proposed to be included for in, in, our, in our national methodologies, which is phenomenal if we get that in. Um, and he's dealing with how to sell this message and lobby for us across Europe, right, including Italy, with the, the populist uh, right-wing government you've got there. And I, I don't envy him the challenge, but to, to, to find a way to pitch this um, for, uh, for, you know, for people from completely different, I mean, how the hell do you even engage with people like that? I don't know, but you kind of have to, you know? Mm. I mean, I think this, you know, obviously I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Brexit, um, but I, you know, it's not all downside one hopes. Yeah. You have to take that position. And I think one of the benefits could be that actually if we get a change of heart in government, however that might be through change of government or change of personnel or whatever, and that we decide to embrace this stuff, it's certainly there's an ability to be very nimble and quick, as it's nimble, more nimble and quick, one hopes. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to look on a bright side here, but I'd mm -hmm. like to think that if we make a decision to tackle this seriously, we could make some inroads. Uh, but until we really do, I, I think we're going to, you know, bounce along doing what, 10,000 hours a year? I don't even know what we're doing really as a retrofit, deep, deep retrofit numbers. I can tell you, yeah, it's, it's not really listed. It's not really got moving. I don't think so. I just thought maybe as we're nearing the end of the, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the recording, I just want to ask maybe, uh, sorry, maybe a question or a topic, but 
you know, obviously because of your your position and your experience in broadcasting, what in your view is the role of television in supporting the sustainability agenda that we have and everything that we've been talking about? Because surely it must be such a good way to communicate key messages. And is it being used to do that? Telly is really difficult, actually. You think you can it, it, you can tell people a lot through telly. And it's really funny. You, start, you set out, you're trying to write a one-hour program, and you're like, oh, my God, I can tell them so much. Yeah. And then actually you realize you're going to get about like six key messages across in an hour. And when you're trying to talk about sustainability, they've got to be interesting in that. Because yeah, telly is fundamentally it's entertainment or distraction. It's very rarely education. I think podcasts... I think, you know, whatever, vlog, vlogs or whatever, I think is a far better media. I'm more excited about that than I am about telly. I think the ability to make deep dive content for sort of very specific audiences to me is more of an interest uh, because I just don't think the main broadcasters are going to really get sustainability. No one's really got it. No one's really cracked it, I don't think. And I have spent 20 years going in and out of commissioning editors' offices and proposing everything under the sun and, 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 and not getting very far. And maybe they're right. You know, maybe telly isn't the place to tell this story, which, which I, you know, is, it seems a shame. But I, I, so I sort of feel like I've, I've tried to make that work. And so I clearly don't understand it uh, well enough. So I'll stick to buildings. And I'll, you know, and, and I think actually where it's really interesting is when you start making quite specific content to help educate people in the areas rather than necessarily signposting to them, to, to them, if you know what I mean. So teaching people about air tightness approaches, teaching people who say, I want to do a retrofit. How do I do a retrofit? The fact that you can get long form content straight to people who are interested, that really excites me. Mm. Not everyone in the country needs to know about deep retrofit. And, and it's very hard to sort of get people excited about those issues without getting stuck in numbers and getting stuck in boring stuff. Do you know what I mean? But making it meaningful and emotional. So I think that's a really vague way of saying I don't have any answers on terms of study, but I am, I am deeply enthusiastic and interested in the podcast, long form, specific kind of content production. I think that, that's a great interest. Charlie, is there anything in particular that you want to um, to, to plug? Uh, we're very very grateful to. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're, we're, I mean, the thing that's most exciting for me at the moment is um, is I'm really interested in this idea of, of driving down embodied energy by a the reuse of structures, but also the reuse of materials. And we we just um, we're working on a on a large project with a local. Um, wildlife charity and it's called wilder spaces and we're looking to create a sort of wilder education experience visitor experience where you come and learn about gardens and how you can make your spaces wilder and, and better for wildlife and and and, and in, in the widest possible sense and connect people with rewilding and that moment of bringing nature back to life um and i, I have a very sort of visceral connection to that because as i mentioned we have these few acres around the office and we've really brought that back to life. We've done lots of wildlife, uh, wildflower planting and sort of 900 trees or something like loads. Of, and we're making scrubland and all these disappearing ecosystems we're trying to repopulate. Mm. The first year I used to walk up from where I live up to the office, they're very close, and uh, it was silent in spring and summer. And the next year there was this bit of noise of insects. And then year by year, it's got louder and louder and louder. And now I'm walking up and it's like, there's all this insect noise. There's raptors hunting. There's, you know, there's deer, there's foxes. I mean, it's just extraordinary. It's, it's a deep, 
deeply reinforcing experience and it's quite extraordinary and so we're trying to create that for people so that people connect with nature and they take that out people can rebuild nature yeah how to re yeah nature's recovery sort of like in current nature recovery and, and part of the idea of that is to build a building out of waste materials and 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 we're trying to looking working with like the helen mccarthy institute starting to work with them about circular economy and how you do that and how you test store like find test store procure and build with these materials and we we've just done a little garden for rhs malvern so they before chelsea they have malvern and and we work with a really good people called Oxford Garden Design, and we entered that, and we built the building on that little show garden out of all waste materials that we found. And we actually won a, an RHS gold medal, best in show and people's choice, and it was sort of extraordinary experience and the discipline of building just with a kit of Lego bits that you found, and you're not going to just go down the shop and buy the thing that's missing. You're going to make it work. And so we've now – that's Amazing. a deeply exciting Thing. It was a small shed, and we're now actually. I've got to go on Saturday night to a school where we're doing an outdoor theatre using the same approach. We're just going out to the community to say, quite a lot of farmers who go, kids at the school and stuff. What have you got behind a shed? What have you got here? What can you get? And then we're just going to design a theatre. And then the next idea is to try and design a sort of uh, two thousand square meter. I think it's about that two thousand square meter visitor centre using the same approach. Now. Naively, that's a disaster waiting to happen. But unless you know, unless it totally is. But unless you like try these things, I think it's um, that we're not going to change the way we build. You know, that we need to really start re radically changing the way we build, the radically changing the flow of materials through our construction sector. And I think unless someone goes out and tries to do something eminently stupid and <laughs> almost bound to fail, uh, you're not going to get the kind of lighthouse project. So. That, I don't know why I brought that up. I think it's because I'm really excited. No, that's amazing. I, I think, think because sustainability, yeah. and that's the thing, right? I, I suppose the big thing is like, it's not about no. It's about new ways of yes. And that's so exciting. If you're into new stuff and you want to find shiny new ideas, and they might not be a blobby building, but they're incredibly sort of deep and meaningful. Mm. Like, just get into it. It's the best. It's amazing. I think the thing is, when you get into stuff like the superstructure of a building and you know and all the uh and stuff like um making sure a building is uh safe for people to to use it's a question of how you develop the uh the rules and the expertise because you, so, some of the stuff you're talking about you can do without worrying about that you know um but there's going to be certain areas where you're going to you want to want to be sure that you've got you you have you know people who who know enough about buildings you build up that kind of understanding uh to to enable that you really to, to push this as far as could be possibly pushed you know yeah you know the, exactly like how do you test it procure it how do you get insurance how do you get indemnities how, how does all of that work i mean it's 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 clearly a massive step change in the way we do things but there's a great um there's a bremen in in, in holland where they needed a new um town hall building and because of the way that their political maps or their you know their what are they called their um, boundaries of political boundaries are they're going to shift they, they think they're only going to need this this office this this town hall building for about 15 years and then everything will shift and it'll probably disappear okay. so they built the building using very standard module sizes standard window heights and sizes and all very tech, you know it's easy to take apart and reuse and they created a complete material log of everything that went into it. Yeah. And the builder, the developer, guaranteed them 20% return as a minimum on, on, the, on the raw material cost that everything had gone into it. 
Fantastic. And it's no very low concrete foundations and stuff. And it's like, it's just this wonderful idea that these materials, quite rightly, I mean, if you've ever sort of, you know, as a younger person got involved in sort of psychedelic experimentation and you're <laughs> about energy flows and materials. I knew we'd get a bit of scandal over here. Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're there thinking about all of that kind of stuff with your mates. That's basically, that's the truth of it. And these building materials will come and go and they're just in flux. So how, where are they and what are they doing at that point in time? And the idea that you're thinking about your buildings having life beyond now is, is kind of an interesting, another level of, of thought process to, to think about. Yeah, there's, um, I need to, find, if I can put it in the show notes, I will, but there's this Dutch um, digital uh, building materials uh, repository uh, web, website, um, which has been set up so that you've got this treating buildings as as material banks. Um, yeah. Uh, so that if somebody goes to buy a building, you know, in 20, 30 years time or more, they know exactly how it was built. They know, yeah. you know, what works were done to it in the intervening years, you know, so that you can exploit the the, the resources that are in there uh, and, and you, you know, find find other uses for them, you know. Um, fascinating stuff. Well, th thank you so much, Charlie. And um, there's, there's so much else we, we could have talked about. And I'll be talking to you again about uh, about your, your case study and looking forward to going through those embodied carbon calcs. Uh, fair play to you. Oh, yes, I think we could, we could. Yeah, we could. There's a lot. There's a lot to chat about in body uh, yeah. That's another whole episode of. Uh, yeah, it's amazing conversation, but really important stuff. No, it's brilliant. Uh, I'm just uh, delighted that you're actually that you're engaging and doing this. And thank you so much for for agreeing to come on. It was, it was a real pleasure having you. Well, it's lovely to chat to you, both of you, Jeff and Alex. Really interesting, and and I love I love your notes about just ask more questions of your clients. I think it's so right. I think it's. The, really core to what we're doing is we don't ask enough questions of, of them okay. yeah. and we don't build we don't not build enough buildings i think as well that's really important yeah. I like that. I like build that. less buildings <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much Thanks. cheers guys lovely to meet you.